this morning is 2 John, and that can be found in your church Bibles on page 1229. 2 John. The Elder. To the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not, on, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have laid from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your father's father send their greetings. I want to give uh, what I hope will be a classic uh, challenge that focuses on basics. Most of our lives are made up of the basics that we need to live out our lives in a normal way. And from this letter, 2nd John, it's a very short letter, just 13 verses, including the introduction and the conclusion, it gives us this classic challenge on what should be our um, priorities, essentials, as Christian people. It's a brief letter. It gives us a little window into the early church. That's all that it is. It's a, and, and what I want us to do is to look, to use this as, as, if you like, the window as we think about the early church and these letters that were written to the churches. It, yes, it tells us a bit about their problems and their priorities the things that united them and the things that caused them to worship and be encouraged. Interestingly, isn't it, if you've got the, the, the uh, page open in front of you, it's, uh, it's 1229 in your ch church Bibles, and you will see that it's written to the chosen lady, the elder to the chosen lady. Was the lady an elder? Ah, oh, would be an interesting one to uh, discuss. And was the lady the leader? 
which obviously carried some influence. It could be, of course, coded language. We're not sure. Our children could be an illustration of the church fellowship. It could be literal. It could be an illustration. But it does give us some idea of the local church and fellow believers. And you see in verse 4 and 5, for instance, this is an interesting pastoral language that is used. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. It's the language of family. Just as the Father commanded us, and now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command. I'm actually not telling you anything new. I'm only enforcing what you already know. And we need that from time to time. And throughout this letter, it's a very short letter, is one supreme concern. And that is a concern for truth. And conversely, if there is a concern for the truth, there's a refusal or a discernment of that which is false. You have that in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the substance of this letter, do not take him into your house or welcome him, and so on. This is quite uh, strident in some ways, isn't it? So I'd just like to, make, um, to, to divide this letter under certain headings so that uh, it will help us as we think about this year that is ahead of us. First of all, we must know the truth. We must know the truth. And this we find in verses uh, 1, 1 to, to 3. Is this coming up? Martin, it isn't. Ah, I didn't see it here. Right. So, the sermon is pointless in terms of... <laughs> it is, but it is purposeful, I hope. Right. So, no, no PowerPoint, Martin. No, thank you. Right. Just switch into a different gear for a minute. Okay. So, we must know the truth. Verses 1 to 3. Uh, John... His introduction is obvious, and notice, in your Bible, if you just were to see verses 1 to 3, it wouldn't take you long to note that there's four references, and it's not vain repetition, four references to truth. Truth is the focal point. And here we have a very interesting balance. If you look carefully, there is this objective truth, verses 1 and 2, to the chosen lady, her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. Do you see knowing it? Objectively. And verse 2, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. But it's accompanied also by, can I put it another way, subjective truth. Look at verse 3. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus, the Father, Son, the Father, Son, will be with us in truth and love. So it's not just something in my mind. It is in my mind, of course. But it's more, it has to filter down into my heart, into my relationships. This idea then, you see, that we must know the truth isn't just understanding it with our minds, but it is knowing it in our lives, in our hearts. Knowing the truth 
What, what do we mean by that? If we were to ask the question, what does it mean? For you as a Christian, you young folk here, and all of us here, if you were asked the question, what does it mean that you know the truth? Well, I hope that your answer would be something like this. Knowing the truth is being in love with Jesus Christ. And to say to people in different situations, He's my Savior, He is my Lord, and I serve Him, and I love Him. That's a very powerful thing to say. Maybe a hard thing to say sometimes in company, perhaps even in church, or maybe just shyness or whatever. Great outpouring of the 1904 revival in Wales began with a little girl who stood up in church or in a prayer meeting, small meeting, saying, I love Jesus. She didn't perhaps know what she's saying is this, I know the truth. Very young, knowing the truth. It isn't simply this head knowledge that we have. We have to have that, of course, but we need a heart knowledge. And there you have it. So to know the truth is to be in love with Jesus. And therefore, surely it follows that we should be grieved by people who are deceiving. Let me put it to you like this. I hope this makes sense. How would you feel? Just think for a moment. How would you feel if someone was to spread lies and false rumors and half-truths about someone whom you love, your best friend, your husband, your wife, your, your confidant, somebody whom you know so well, and somebody is spreading rumors. How would you feel? Well, the answer to that is it depends how much you really love them. would determine how you feel. How you feel. It depends how much you love that person. And when we hear false things about the Lord Jesus, you can test your love as to how you feel. You say, you shouldn't speak about him like that. No, that, that's not the Jesus I know. That's knowing the truth. For some Christians it seems knowing the truth is just winning the argument. We must know the truth. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. Truth and love. And so this year is unfolding before us. We take him with us. So when you love the truth, you love Jesus. And when you guard the truth, you guard, you defend the Lord Jesus. So we must know the truth with our minds and we must know the truth in our hearts. We must know it. We must love him because he is the truth. You see now why this letter has been written. How would the church have ever survived with all of this pressure internally and externally, politics and, 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 and morality and all the pressures of living out our lives, how would it ever survive apart from the truth, the truth? And it is a classic challenge, isn't it, that we take with us. Secondly, we must walk in the truth. All right, we've, we've set out our stall. But look, look at verses 4 to 6. Um, 
We've got to work it out in practice. And, and this is always a challenge. And this is a very pastoral, this verse, isn't it? Look, it, it gave me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, who is this person? This leader? You could engage in arid discussion about ordination and leadership and so on. And yet here in this church is someone who is in the home walking in the truth. It's a very powerful thing, isn't it? To work it out in practice. It's not enough to talk in the truth. It's not enough to preach sermons from pulpits. It's not enough. It's not enough to correct the truth. The challenge is to obey it. To obey it. Some people don't get beyond correcting and don't get down to living. And that's relatively easy. Usually people like that tend to be critical of others. Put it like this. If in verse 4, right, if there's no greater joy in finding it, right, surely there's no greater sorrow in losing it. Okay, look, verse 4. It has given me great joy to find some of you people walking in the truth. Look at verse 8. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for. Some people have a view of the gospel that once you've got it, you'll never lose it. I'm not so sure. Does it create a faith that is merely presumptuous? That I don't need to pray? That I don't need to grow in grace? That I can do what I like? I don't think so. I don't think that's a presumptuous faith. We've got to work it out in practice. It's not enough to talk about the truth or, de or to defend it. If I've got no greater joy in finding it, I ought to know the greatest sorrow in losing it. And the language of the hymns come, where is the blessedness once I knew, when first I saw the Lord, what has happened to my faith, my love for the Lord Jesus. Now isn't it interesting here, when we're talking about love, and yet side by side, four times in verses 4 to 6, the word command is used. And we tend to think it's either love or command. But here John marries them together. Together. And those whom God has joined together, we should not separate, should we? Do you see this? Four times the command. I wonder if you've ever been slightly troubled by that. Well, there's the verse there. It's one of our verses for the year. And a new command I give you, love one another. How can you command someone to love? Well, in a sense, it's ridiculous. You can't. Unless, of course, you are appealing not to people's emotions, not to people's feelings, but if you are appealing to people's will, you can command. You can. That's what Jesus is doing. So it makes sense. It's not ridiculous. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. By this will the world begin to sit up and take notice that you belong to me. And somehow feelings and commands seem to be ill at ease with each other. And yet John seems to marry them perfectly. Four times he uses this word, command, command. 
uniquely Christian love, or what is here referred to as agape, agape love, is not about my feelings. I know they're important. We wouldn't be human if we didn't have feelings. Or my emotions. I'm not a robot. I have emotions. But this love, this agape love is addressed to my will. And he says, will you? Will you? And you might have to grab your feelings by the scruff of the neck and take them with you. And that is love. It's not Hollywood love, but it's authentic love. Feelings are important. Emotions come into it. But it's the will. It's that unique appeal. And we must walk in the truth. Walk in the truth. And John brings love and obedience together in this marriage. Look at verse 6. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is, there it is, walk in love. And you know, of course, if you know your Bibles, to walk in love actually means to live in love. Live in love. Now let's try to get down to this in, in, in specifics for a moment. What about the, the challenge for us as a church this year? of coming together. Have you ever thought that actually there are times when you are going to come to church not for your blessing, but for the blessing of others? Have you ever thought of that? I hope you have. Because if you say, oh, I don't feel like coming today, but I belong to a covenant people. Let's, we're talking about walking in the truth and walking in love. What about Sitting with others. What do you do after the service comes to an end? Try talking, welcoming. So we don't actually need to get out of the building in order to work this through. We're all creatures of habit and custom. There are people whom we relate to and for sure others whom we don't. There's the world of difference between liking a person and loving a person. And we are called to love people whom we don't like. By that I mean people with whom we don't have any other interest other than that they are saved by grace and they are your brother and sister in Christ. What about praying for others? Have you ever wondered why it is that we seem so enthusiastic to pray for ourselves? and our sadnesses, and so slow to pray for others. Why is that? Of course we should pray for ourselves, but not exclusively. That's what we call walking in the truth. Cultivating these good habits. They won't come by accident. You see, these would be our priorities for this new year as a church fellowship. And finally and lastly, yes, we must, we must know the truth. Uh, we must walk in the truth. And then the last section, verses 7 to the end, is we must continue in the truth. So much of our lives, I don't know about you, is often with me it's a stop-start thing. And yet we are called to continue in the rhythm of faith and grace and life. 
It's an imperfect world. And I need to remind you that you belong to an imperfect church. This one. That doesn't mean we go on a witch hunt. Lots of people, a lot of ink has been spilt and sadly blood also about the issue of the Antichrist as it is in verse 7. And some of it isn't very helpful. And there are so many distractions. So many bad role models of Christian love. We know that. And yet, verse 8 is a salutary reminder to us. Watch out, and it's very personal, that you, 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 me, do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. We need to continue in the truth. Just turn over one page towards the end of the New Testament, or perhaps two in your Bible, and you come to this little book, the book of Jude. Now, Jude says this in Jude 3. It's just one page uh, letter, like 3 John, and this is what it says. He says, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance, verse 2, and then this. Dear friends, fellow believers, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Why? For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So it wasn't easy being a believer in the early church then. And continuing in the truth means sometimes we might have to be out of step with others. Interestingly, this term antichrist, the, the, the Greek prefix is anti, which can have two angles. It, it can be both instead of and against. Stay with me, anti, instead of and against, which means this, that not only to subvert Jesus, but in a more subtle way, substitute him. A substitute Christ that is no Christ at all. Did you know that uh, Princess Diana, when uh, during the latter part of her life that she wanted to get away from the press, the hounding press, that she would have a double, someone who looked identical as much as you from a distance, and saw the double would go one way and perhaps for a day or for an evening she would have some respite from the hounding press who maybe subsequently took her life, who knows. With that illustration, think about the double of Jesus who take us but they're not the real thing, not the real person and we end up down a blind alley and we are distracted, and we lose what we have worked for. So to continue surely means two things. The first, from verse 8, it means don't go back. Don't go back. Surely that's what he's saying here. Watch out. Do not lose what you have worked for. 
Don't go back. What is there to go back to? And this may be a reference to people who want to go back to their, their, their roots of a religion. It may be, it, it may be Jewish legalism. It may be the gods of Rome. Temptation to go back, the secular or the sacred, whatever. But what is there to go back to? Or what, what about us? What have we got to go back to when we come to faith in Jesus Christ? Now we can see that personally, or perhaps we could see it as a church. And surely church history is, is patently, obviously clear at this point that a church can lose its vision and vitality. Don't go back. If it means that, the first thing, the second thing, surely it means don't run ahead. Don't think that you're some elite, exclusive group, that you know everything. Do you see verse 9? Don't run ahead. Look, anyone who runs ahead, do you see this? And does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And you see three times there, verse 9 and 10, teaching, teaching, teaching. Knowing the truth, walking in the truth, continuing in the truth, it's a very powerful thing. So, don't go back. A church or, a, or, a, or an individual or a leadership or a leader can lose the vision of a living Christ, of a gospel of grace. But don't run ahead. Don't go beyond God's word in what is falsely called progress. So let me conclude. Do you, see, do you see the application here, if it isn't obvious already? To, to know the truth in the language of Jesus. You will know the truth. It will set you free. And all of our lives we are beset by challenges, things that ensnare us. <coughs> know the truth. It will set you free. And walking in the truth you will experience fellowship. If we should ever say, God forbid, that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we walk in the truth as he in the truth, we have fellowship one with another. It's the language of 1 John 1, 9. So to know the truth is to be set free. To walk in the truth is to have authentic Christian fellowship. And to continue in the truth is surely to be fruitful people. And John says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Shakespeare's classic, Julius Caesar, reveals a timely challenge. Here we are on the cusp perhaps of great things in this new year. He says this, There is a time in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyages of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. We've missed out God has called us together to be a covenant people, 
to serve him, to obey him, and to follow him. So, take this. Just reflect upon it and, and ask yourself, where am I at? And what am I doing? And where am I going? And trust in him. And it may be that you actually only know about him, that this morning you'd want to pray that you would reach out to him and trust him for yourself. And may I say this, if not, why not? What could possibly hold you back from trusting in Jesus Christ? That you could say at a certain time in my life, and the first Sunday of the new year, though I'd heard many times, I clearly put my trust in Jesus Christ. And he becomes my Savior and my Lord and my King and my Sovereign.